form. In Corinth, a premium was placed on how other people perceived you, and uh, that was the key, sort of your name and name recognition was the key to upward status mobility. We talked about how they inscribed their names on monuments, the, the Babius Philonus monument last week. They would even inscribe their names into the city streets. Uh, what do they think then was the good life? I, I'm getting a lot of feedback up here, Tyrone. What did they think was the good life? What did they think was a life worth living? You know, the Greek word for wisdom is the word Sophia, and from which we get uh, other English words like sophisticated. You know, Sophia. What is what is Sophia? F- Sophia for them was like skill in living. Uh, in that day, you would have traveling public intellectuals who were skilled in in rhetoric, and they were wise men, and they, they were full of Sophia, and they had the wisdom to teach other people how to live well and to live skillfully. And at the risk of oversimplifying, and I know this is an oversimplification, it seemed like the good life for them, it was the keys to the good life were honor, glory, contemplation, leisure, power, pleasure, wealth. You know, that was the key to the good life. That's how you went from being a nobody to a somebody. And that, all of that, those steps really play into the passage that we have today to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. I heard someone make a comment about this passage, and here's what they said. Quote, to anyone who grasps what's written in this text, the world can never look the same again. And when I, at first when I heard that, I thought, oh, come on, <laughs> preacher hyperbole. The world can never look the same again. But the more I've considered it, the more I think he's absolutely right. That when you see what Paul has to show in this passage, your whole way of, of seeing the world, seeing you know, life, it just gets turned upside down. Like everything that you thought about power and wisdom has to be reinterpreted in light of the cross. Everything you thought about success and honor and achievement and and status, everything you thought about the American dream, the the cross is going to show us an entirely different way of living. And it's a way that contradicted the sensibilities of people in Corinth 2,000 years ago, and it, it certainly contradicts sensibilities today. Like Nobody thought that if you wanted to find God, that God was to be found <laughs> there at, at the cross, that that is the one and only place. The cross of Christ is where you could find God, and yet and he reveals himself through the shame and the weakness of the cross. If that is true, if that is truly true, then it means you have to rethink everything. Everything in light of the cross. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved, for it is written, and here he quotes Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. And he asks these rhetorical questions. Well, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, 
God was pleased to save those who believe through the, through the foolishness of what is preached. For Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the strong, the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In that order, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, we pray to you again as your children, so thankful to be in your family and thankful that you speak to us through your word. We, we know that the things that we boast in are the things that we're like most proud of ourselves about, the things that we want other people to notice about us. And so we ask, please, Holy Spirit, that you would do a good work in our hearts and our minds so that the thing we really boast in, that we truly boast in, is about Jesus the Messiah and specifically uh, his cross. Do that, we pray, through the use of the sermon today. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Okay, number one, the image of the cross. You know, many people have pointed out this difficulty, just how difficult it is for us to recapture what the image of the cross must have meant to people in the ancient world. You know, we have crosses everywhere. Crosses are ubiquitous. We have them in our stained glass. We have them in our architecture. We have them in our art. We have them in our jewelry. It's a standard image, but for them, and you know this, I'm just reiterating it, for them, you know, cross, crosses were hideous. I mean, how bad was a cross? Cicero, the Roman statesman and lawyer, said that being crucified, being crucified was worse than decapitation, and it was worse, he said, than even being burned alive. I mean, what is he describing? Like supreme horror. Here on the screen you see is a picture of an electric chair, which they use to execute criminals. And we think of the electric chair as a, a particularly uh, horrific way to die, I think. And today, you know, no sensible person, nobody would think to wear a golden electric chair around their neck, you know, around a gold chain around their neck, because everyone would regard that as just truly grotesque. It is grotesque. You know, electric chairs, they were meant to, to basically put an end to the victim as quickly as possible, to snuff out life, as, as, to kill as quickly as possible. Whereas, you know, the cross... It was meant to basically prolong the death for as long as possible, um, to drag, drag it out over hours and even over days. It, we've talked to even, I think, on other Sundays, how the cross, not only was it a tool of pain, of tremendous pain, but it was also a tool of, of public shame. And, you know, when you think about public shame in our context today, the shame of crucifixion would be 
something like the shame today of being put on a sex offender's registry list. I mean, nobody wants to have anything to do with you if you're, you know, on the list. And in that same way, like, nobody would, nobody wanted to be associated with a crucified criminal in the first century. So, like, if you were living in the Mediterranean world in the first century, and you wanted to promote your new religion, you you would not say, hey, everyone, you know, the one, the one that we worship has been crucified by the Romans. Like, come follow us as we follow a crucified God. I mean, not, not only would that not make sense, but it would just, it would simply, it would sound, it would sound horrific, disgusting, shameful, something like worthy of little more than mocking and scorn. I say that because then it puts Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 2 2 in a particularly uh, compelling light. It, we find it all the more re- remarkable that he says this to them. He says, That I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like, think of the guts that it would have taken for Paul to say that in their world. Like, when he came into a city that prided itself on its intellectual and cultural life, and he stood up and to speak about Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified by the Romans, and he knew, he absolutely knew what people would think about him and what people would think about that message, that they would just laugh it to scorn. They would find it disgusting. I know that I wouldn't have that kind of guts to stand in front of an audience um, and say things like that, would you? The image of the cross. Number two, the cross, unsurprisingly, would be then despised by the somebodies. What do I mean? Well, the world has always been full of somebodies and nobodies. And while that's not the way that God, God intended this world to be, Um, He intended this world so that every human being, whether they are man, woman, a child, even an unborn child, that that we all bear the image and likeness of God fully 100%. um, So so that nobody has more dignity or worth or uh, like gravitas than anybody else because we all equally bear the image of God. And we don't have more dignity because people have heard of us or people look up to us or, or people think that we're in some way special. Like, that's how the Lord you know, designed the world, but that's not the way the world works because, like, the way the world works is you gotta be, you, you gotta be a somebody. I mean, in our day, the somebodies, the admired figures are, I mean, we could go through the list, right? Athletes, celebrities, maybe business leaders, people, people with advanced degrees, people with high-paying status jobs, uh, successful musicians, successful artists, people who um, have achieved a certain level of wealth, a certain level of successful people on the whole. Those are the people that tend to be admired. Well, in verse 20, Paul lays out a trio of somebodies in their day, three, three groups that were highly admired, and they are the wise man, the, the teacher of the law, and the rhetorician, you know, the, the debater, he says, of this age. And each one of those, they, they occupied either in Greek or Jewish culture a place of real significance. They, they mattered. And each one of them really were gatekeepers to a cultural narrative. Like each powerful group in society has always had a worldview or a world story or a cultural narrative that um, shapes the identities and assumptions of that group. And in order to be part of that group, you have to like 
funnel through. You have to buy, buy into that worldview and that narrative. Well, what Paul does is after singling out the somebodies, he then in verse 22 very quickly critiques the, the cultural narrative uh, of those somebodies. And he says in verse 22, for the Jews, Jews ask for signs. See, the Jewish cultural, cultural narrative was that they were a persecuted minority, oppressed by the Romans, and the Messiah would come in power, and he would triumph, and he would be the king and deliverer of his people. And so the demand for a sign was basically a sign from heaven that God would send, and they would confirm that, that this man is approved by God, and he is truly the Messiah. So the teachers of the law then... The teachers of the law look at the cross and they, and they say, where is the sign here? Where is the sign that he is the Messiah? He was crucified. They scoff. That's the ultimate sign of weakness. That's a reversal of the story. The Messiah will come and deliver us from the Romans. He was crucified by the Romans. The ultimate sign of weakness. Or was it? Do you recall the moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to capture Jesus and in Matthew 29, just as they're about to arrest him, um, Peter unsheaths his sword. He pulls out his sword, and Jesus admonishes him, and he says, put, your, put away your sword. Don't you realize that I could, I could summon my father who would send 12 legions of angels in, in my defense? Do you recall that moment? 12 legions of angels? Like, no other human being on the planet could simply snap their fingers and summon such force. Like, here we have truly the most powerful man on earth, and yet he chooses not to exert that power. Like, if, if you think about it, as he's being mocked and spit upon and hanging there, like, he voluntarily chooses to be powerless. It's so remarkable that when he was on that cross, he absolutely chose to stay defenseless, to stay helpless. So Jews asked for signs. And then here he critiques the Greek view. And, and the Greeks seek wisdom. So for the Greeks, the activity that would bring us closest to the divine is the activity of thought, of contemplation. Um, w wisdom was gained through contemplation. The basic assumption was that if there's going to be any meeting of the gods and us mortals, it would be with us sort of going up, ascending upward into higher levels, higher levels of thought, really. Um, because that's, that was the direction, is we move upward, you know, to the forms, to the Platonic ideals, what, what, whatever. And that assumption also then matches the social hierarchy and the power dynamics in their society, because those of higher status, they, they didn't des descend to meet those below. If you wanted to get there, you, you had to, you know, ascend up. You had to go up. And yet Jesus' life, we would have to say when we examine it, was not a life of upward mobility. It was a life of downward mobility. It was a life of service. It was a life of sacrifice. It was a life of suffering. And the salvation that Jesus ends up bringing to his people is, is not us rising up to be with him, but it's, a, it's frankly a, a salvation through descent. I, it's, I think, an important distinction to note, and I'll, I'll do it respectfully, to note this difference between, say, Christianity and Islam 
or Christianity and Mormonism or Christianity and Buddhism. Like, and here it is. Other world religions teach salvation through ascent to God. How? Well, through our good works, through our moral virtue, through ritual observances, through the transformation of our consciousness. In contrast, Jesus died in disgrace. Jesus died betrayed. He died denied. He was abandoned by everybody. Abandoned, it seems like, even by his father. And it was a salvation in Christianity, a salvation of descent. Where was the wisdom, the Sophia, in, in that, in the Greek world? Where is the wisdom? See, the wisdom is everywhere because there is no greater strength than the strength enough to be weak. When God reveals himself to us in the shame and weakness of the cross, he shows us that, that sacrificial love is the one thing, is the one thing in the world that can triumph where brute force cannot. You know, and, and God knows that his ways, they are gonna, they're gonna appear to people in this world as, as foolishness. And they're especially gonna appear to be dumb and foolish to the somebodies in this world. What Paul goes on to say is that basically God deliberately arranged things in this world so that we couldn't truly understand him and his ways in our natural way of thinking. And that's where, I, here he goes in verse 23. Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews and a foolishness to the Gentiles. In the wisdom of God, the world couldn't know God in its own wisdom. He arranged, he arranged it that the only way you could know me is by basically believing in something and coming through the doorway of, of disgrace. It's idiocy. This is the craziest, most shameful message anybody could imagine. It, this is something that only a fool could believe in. And that's the point, <laughs> right? That only a fool, only a fool could know this way through Christ crucified. And that's where he's trying to, like, lead every one of us. One of my favorite songs, I don't, have you ever heard the Michael Card song? Um, I think it's God's Fool, but yeah, oh, it's, it's so, it's so good. Uh, you know, that he is, Christ in some sense, is the fool of God who bids us to be foolish and come follow him. Something Aaron and I were talking about, before I get to number three, I'll just mention this. We were talking about it earlier today that when you read through the Gospels, the people that Jesus seems to be most angry with, um, normally say it's the religious authorities, it's the scribes and the Pharisees, but I think more broadly, it's, it's anyone, Jesus gets the most angry with anyone who's going to lead anyone else astray from, from coming into his kingdom. Anyone who basically puts a, a stumbling block before another human being so that they themselves can't become a fool and enter into the kingdom. Um, and I think that that just is, it's a, it's a warning to every one of us to be very careful to, to sort of not use our foolishness or our blindness to poison and blind others because that's, that's in fact what Jesus is, is the most frustrated with. So, number two, that was the... Uh, the, the, the disgrace to the somebodies. Number three, uh, he offers a new and foolish way of life. I'll return back to this author in just a minute, but I'm going to read you a lengthy quote from a book, and I'll tell you about the book in, in a second. 
Today we think of philosophy as an academic subject, but for the ancients, philosophy was an, was an, was an art of living. Ancient philosophy was a way of life, and we've almost adopted that phrase nowadays, haven't we? We love that, a, a way of life. So um, surfing is not just a sport, it's a way of life, and jazz is not just a style of music, it's a way of life. Even the website for the Spartan Obstacle Course races proclaims Spartan is more than a race, it's a way of life. Um, the idea of a way of life suggests something that, is, that encompasses the full scope of how one lives. What was the Corinthian way of life? I think it, it will become clear the longer we move through the letter. But already, hopefully, if you've heard the first two sermons, and you, you just get the feeling that the Corinthian way of life, it is an upwardly mobile way of life. It's very status conscious. It's, it's more status, more honor, more leisure, more pleasure, more success. I think as we go through the letter, you'll see that these Corinthians were, they were operating in a perfectly natural way of thinking. <laughs> they, were oper- they were thinking along the lines of how the people in their culture would, would naturally think about the questions of status and, and success and achievements. You know, that was the way of life that everybody pursued. But what is the Christian way of life? The Christian way of life, it's cruciform. It's in the shape of a cross. The cruciform life is the way of life. And in the cruciform life, everything we've thought about, power and wisdom and status, it all has to be reinterpreted. It's almost like Paul, he'll keep coming back to this, that he'll say to you, like, if you're concerned about status and power, don't you realize there is no greater strength than the strength to be weak? And if you're concerned about promoting yourself and you're concerned about glory, there's no greater glory than taking the lowest place. You say, well, that's foolish talk. It is foolish talk. Yes, it is. It was then and it is now. Luther made a distinction. He, he called it, this distinction, he made it between so-called theologians of glory versus theologians of the cross. What, what is a, a theologian or a theology of glory? came up with a couple of ideas. A theology of glory is when we use our power to assert ourselves over others. We do it in our homes or in our marriages. It could be the way that we use our anger against our spouse, uh, our anger against our children. It it could be the way that we use our words to manipulate um, our, our spouse or our children or one another. It's using our strength or our intellect that is a theology of glory because it's, it means that I will triumph over you in order to get my way. What's another example of a theology of glory? Well, we think that the, the person who is most blessed is the one who gets to live most comfortably. That's kind of an American way of thinking things. We tend to equate God's blessing with our comfort and with our um, net wealth. And with all, that's a theology, most likely, of glory. And we also tend to think that the good life is the one, the life that is good is the life that is spared of suffering. And so we accordingly do everything we can to minimize it or ignore it or see our suffering as sort of a means to an end, sort of an unpleasant, necessary step on the way to the good things that God has planned for us 
in the future. That's a theology of glory. The theology of the cross, it questions all those assumptions. <laughs> it questions that the best life is the life of personal achievement and recognition and pleasure-free, um, pleasure uh, pain-free pleasure. There we go. <laughs> is it hard to live as a theologian of the cross? Yes, of course, exceptionally. Uh, we, we hear it, and we may even say, like, cruciform life, um, that doesn't sound very good to me. It doesn't sound very good, because it completely upends the way that we have been taught to behave and, and operate uh, and throughout our days. It's very difficult to, um, it's very difficult to embrace. I'll give an example, a sad example. So the book that I referenced earlier, it, is, it was written by, co-authored by a pastor who planted a church in our denomination in Los Angeles and a philosophy student. I'm looking for the name of it. It's titled, The Cross Before Me, and it was published in 2019. And it was really, it's a quite good book because it's all about the cruciform life that we are called to. Well, the pastor of that church was and is a phenomenal speaker. I'm one of the best preachers out there, one of the best preachers in America. And curiously enough, um, this material that he used for the book, a lot of it he was preaching on a sermon series in 1 Corinthians in 2018. So it got published in 2019. He was preaching on it in 2018. Some of the best sermons that I have ever heard on 1 Corinthians. And I have I've been using some of the ma- that material here. I've drawn from it. Well, in 2020, um, right after the book was published, he ends up confessing to a pattern of behavior of having an angry and domineering spirit over those in his charge, of lying, of manipulative behavior and deceitful speech to maintain control um, in his church. And he basically ends up um, like getting kicked out of his church, and I don't know any of the details of it, but I, it just struck me. It, it struck me that here we have somebody who wrote so beautifully and preached so powerfully about how status and power have to be reinterpreted in light of the cross, like grade A material, and then it must be hard to execute that, right? If you can't, if you spend three years of your life writing it, and then you can't, you can't actually even do it. You know, because we have these patterns of behavior, like, deeply ingrained in us, these, these ways of, like, I can say that I'm supposed to lay my life down for you, I'm supposed to be gentle and meek and and all of that, but if, if all I've really known is I've got to be in control and I've got to use my anger, then we go very quickly into those patterns. It just, I guess it just, it strikes me how desperately we need other people in our lives to point out to us when we're doing this and how truly desperately we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives you know, to bring it truly to effect. You know, Paul's going to make this point later. He's going to say, you are, you Christians, you say you're Christians, but you're still living as Corinthians. You know, you're looking up to those who Corinthians look up to, and you're valuing what Corinthians value. You're, you're still caught up in all, what all the other Corinthians are caught up in. You're still measuring yourself with all the old status markers, wealth and success and recognition and, and appearance. You're still boasting about all the old things. 
When in real reality, there is only one thing, one thing to boast in. And that's what God is calling to you. And number four, he's calling you into this new life. He, he reminds them about how they first came to faith, verses 26 through 29. Um, he writes, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. There were some, but not many. Instead, God has chosen what is um, foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing, what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. He says, uh, remember your calling. Isn't it interesting? If you hear your name called out in a room, uh, even if there's a lot of noise in the room, if you, if you hear Chuck, <laughs> if you hear Paul, <clears throat> if you hear Lucy, even if there's a ton of noise, it'll catch your attention. Why? Because your, your name breaks through all the noise. You hear it because it's your name. And what he says is, when God called you by name, when he called you by name, you were a nobody. You didn't come from a high-status position. You weren't among the wise that society looked up to. You're trying to get there now. You're trying to achieve that now, but Look at the message's paraphrase of verse 26. Take a good look, friends, at what you were when you got called into this new life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society. You didn't have social power. You didn't come from noble, well-known families. Why? Because God chose you in your weakness, you weak people, to shame those who assumed that they were strong. And he does it well, he does it for a lot of reasons. He does it so that the best and the brightest, you know, can't boast in their being the best and the brightest. They can't boast in their own strength. And he does it also so that those who have nothing, those who have nothing to boast about, those who don't have two pennies to rub together, would not be given entirely to despair. Um, he does it because, he does it because he's the God of the great reversal. You know, it's great news for the poor, it's great news to those who aren't successful. It's great news to those who aren't virtuous. He basically delivers, he, he, he brings you out of all the things, all the things that might charm you in order to truly deliver you. <clears throat> okay, let me finish here. I don't know if you caught it, but he says that the cross ends up dividing humanity into two camps, uh, into two groups. And we don't like to talk about this sometime because we don't like to focus on, you know, people dying. We don't like to talk about judgment. We don't like to talk about hell. But, but here he, he does, he talks about it a little bit. He says there are two groups. One, there are those who are perishing. And two, there are those who are being saved. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to the first group, to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God to the second group, to those who are being saved. And this is very, very important. I don't want you to miss it. All people um, are either in need of salvation because they have rejected the word of the cross or they are presently being saved. They are experiencing salvation because of the power of the cross. The cross 
is the dividing line. Like, people's response to the cross, he says, is, is the, the line in the sand. The cross is foolish to the ones who are perishing. Like, the only way that you can see the wisdom of the cross is, he'll go on to show us, um, for God to do a work in you, for, for the Holy Spirit to give you new eyes and a new art, to see the wisdom of the cross. The cross says, you are liberated, You are forgiven, you are released, you are free. The cross says you can come, you are chosen, you are loved, you're accepted, you're welcome. Um, It's a message of life and it's a message of death because that is the only place that God can be found. He is only found in the shame and the weakness of the cross. And when you see that, when you truly see that, it ends up turning your world upside down. Amen.